Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Tuesday, December the 10th. And thank you so much for tuning in. On today's show, I will be talking a little hockey and I'll also be set to discuss some concerns for healthcare workers and safety in the workplace. In about 10 minutes or so, I will be joined by the Hospital Employees Union to talk about safety in the workplace and a new plan by the provincial government to find ways to improve working conditions. But to begin today's show, the First Nations Leadership Council is calling on the federal and provincial governments to immediately declare a state of emergency and urgently prioritize resources for the removal of the physical obstruction at the Big Bar landslide on the Fraser River within the next 60 days. The Big Bar landslide has made it impossible for migrating salmon to push through to their natal streams, and now more than uh, and now there are growing concerns about the future of the salmon population. Uh, I'm joined now by Regional Chief Terry Tiji, uh, the First Nation leadership with the First Nation Leadership Council. So thank you so much for coming on the program today, Chief. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. So maybe if you can start by telling me, you know, why you feel the need to put out this call for a state of emergency now. What is it about the timing of this that makes it so urgent? Well, I think the reason we put a forward a state of emergency is that uh, we have a very limited amount of time to clear the uh, the big bar slide and, and the Fraser River. And uh, the Pacific Salmon Commission has uh, come out and uh, with a presentation and stated uh, possibly that three salmon species are on the verge, could be on the verge of extinction. The early Stewart and, and two Chinook uh, species, because of the uh, big bar slide, and there was uh, really not enough intervention earlier when uh, the slide uh, happened. So the reason we're calling for a state of emergency is not only the, the threat to many species of salmon, but also the limited amount of time. Right now is probably the opportune time to uh, get into the big bar slide area and, and clear that area. So really, that's uh, time is of the essence. So, I mean, when when you make a call for a state of emergency like this, I guess what what does that exactly do? Like, how, how does that kind of change the situation here moving forward now that a, a state of emergency has been called for? Well, I think if the both of the levels of government uh, agree to a state of emergency, that they could utilize all. Uh, resources uh, to uh, put forward to, to to deal with an urgent matter. So it really eliminates uh, all the bureaucracy and perhaps red tape uh, and, and really to move on this issue. And that's the reason why we're asking for a state of emergency, uh, knowing full well that we have a limited amount of time to clear the area and the river. Yeah, and you guys, uh, from from the release that I had, had read here, it talks about, uh, you know, within 60 days to try to remove that physical obstruction. So uh, when we're talking about, you know, a two-month period here um, and, and, and the concern about uh, potential extinction, I guess, of, of three species of salmon as a result, I mean, uh, this is something that, that you're really pushing for to get done sooner than later or, or it could come with some severe consequences. And can, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the consequences for the people who rely on some of these species of salmon? for their livelihood and, and sort of what, what would happen moving forward if this isn't taken care of within these next two months? Well, I think, you know, these three species are perhaps the, you know, the uh, probably the first three of many 
that could be on the verge of extinction, knowing full well that not only obstruction is threatening the, the population, but also the issue of uh, overfishing, climate change, uh, all the pressures on the many species of salmon, and all the First Nations that rely on these salmon, uh, whether it's for uh, commercial use as part of their economic development portfolio, or more importantly, their food, social, and ceremonial purposes. And um, I myself, I'm, I'm from the area where uh, some of these species, in particular the, the early stewart, uh, go back to to spawn. And we really haven't fished this this uh, population for a number of years, and uh, we've been uh, uh, telling a lot of the, the fish users and also those that make decisions, such as DFO, that uh, uh, you know this is a, a, an urgent matter and uh, an issue that uh, we've been talking about for a number of years. And I think um, it's not only a threat to the issues of, of the salmon, but also a threat to uh, First Nations livelihood and, and First Nations rights and title to uh, many things that we have enjoyed for since time immemorial. So I think it's quite important that, that we intervene. Many First Nations, uh, especially those that uh, have uh, FSC allocation, food, social, and ceremonial, have gone into conservation mode because of the, the declining stocks. And I think everybody should go into conservation mode, and perhaps some of these species require some sort of intervention. How, how do you feel, I guess, the situation has been handled so far? I mean, it feels like uh, I just moved here in the earlier part of the summer, and I've been hearing quite a bit about this big bar landslide and the, the concerns that come with it since I got here, but it doesn't feel like a lot of progress has been made uh, over that time in terms of being able to, um, you know, relieve the blockade that exists and, and to really, you know, help protect the, the salmon species that are, uh, you know, at risk right now that you have brought up as a result of this state of emergency. So uh, I'm just curious how you feel the situation has been handled so far obviously uh, you know looking for some more action to be taken that's why the soe here is being called for um but just do you have any thoughts on the efforts as they've existed so far i mean um you know have you been at least happy to see any of the the the, the work that's gone on to to this point well, I think, you know, the, the issue here was uh, that there was a concerted effort from DFO, uh, provincial government, and the local First Nations. And, and many First Nations agreed that uh, we should go into conservation mode. So I hold my hands up to all the First Nations to decide that we must go into conservation mode. But the problem is, is that many other user groups weren't in conservation mode. And matter of fact, the DFO allowed some commercial and, and sports fishing to occur on some of these uh, populations. And I think, um, you know, for an issue like this, as we know that um, in June that some of these uh, species would, would be heading back up uh, uh, past the side, that they, it was too slow to move, too slow to, to react to the, uh, uh, the issues that they would be, uh, you know, trying to trans, uh, try to bypass this, uh, uh, the slide area. So... Um, as much as, uh, you know, some of the concerted effort, it wasn't enough because right now they know that three species could be potentially at risk of extinction. So I think, um, I, I think, you know, what I'm disappointed with is that after all the, the salmon species were looked after and, and, uh, intervention was had with, uh, you know, buckets of, of salmon brought to transect this uh, or go bypass this uh, slide is that uh, uh, there should have been more of a plan to um, 
to relieve the obstruction and, and get rid of the obstruction. And um, I, I certainly, I know they're they're doing something now, and I and I don't want to impede on the progress if there's any. Uh, but there must be a concerted effort to continue to to uh, clear the site uh, in the next uh, 60, 90 days because the salmon are coming back and. Uh, there's enough pressure on those species of salmon, a number of species of salmon in the freezer. I think that's pretty yeah. much all I had for questions here for you, Chief. Um, I guess just, uh, yeah, best of luck here moving forward in these next, uh, you know, 60 to 90 days, like you had mentioned. Um, hopefully some work gets done. And, uh, you know, I know you've made this call for the province and feds to, uh, you know, declare the state of emergency. Um, any ideas when uh, when you'll hear sort of what, what their response is? Well, I heard back from some of the First Nations who there is some work happening right now, uh, which is good. And I think, um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, some of this uh, would uh, support and help uh, those First Nations to clear that whole setup. So provide enough resources to do that. So hopefully this is enough political push to make sure that the site is clear. So I think... Um, um, uh, I hope to hear more of a, a report uh, from the DFO and also so from the province and the First Nations in that area. Perfect. Well, Chief TG, thank you so much for your time today. I, I really appreciate you uh, speaking with me here. And uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a story we've been following for quite some time, and and we're going to continue to follow it. So hopefully, we see some movement here as a result of this. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be we'll be watching. So thanks so much, Chief. I really appreciate yeah. it. Okay, thank you. That was Regional Chief Terry TG. So will the provincial and federal government step up to the plate for this leadership council on this issue? Uh, well, well, I guess we'll, we'll find out here in the not-too-distant future. I'm going to be continuing on with this uh, conversation here in a little while and speaking with Judy Wilson on the subject. Uh, she's the secretary-treasurer for the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. So that's going to be coming up uh, in about uh, 25 minutes here, or, or sorry, about 17 or 18 minutes here. Sorry, my math is uh, a little bit off here this morning. So stick around for that conversation. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to have uh, some more insight into what's going on here uh, in this process at the Big Bar site and, and at the Fraser River site where these uh, fish are having some trouble migrating. So I, I think it's an important conversation and one that's been going on for some time and uh, I think is worth continuing and, and then now with this declaration or this call for a state of emergency is clearly uh, starting to see some, some bigger pushes here to, to get this blockade removed and, and see these salmon be able to move again. So um, yeah, I'll be talking with Judy Wilson here about that in a little bit of time. So continuing on with that important conversation. Coming up after the break, though, I'm going to be talking about the uh, safety of hospital workers and just healthcare workers in general. The province is planning to spend $8.5 million over the next three years to create a new independent agency that will tackle workplace safety for healthcare workers. This past weekend, the health ministry said the agency will deal with increasing rates of injuries for healthcare and social service workers. It says in 2018, injury claims cost more than $107 million, which was an increase of about $11 million from 2017. That's a pretty substantial increase year over year. A statement from Health Minister Adrian Dix says the health care providers are there for us when we need them most, and they deserve safe and healthy workplaces. He says this new independent agency represents a significant consensus by all stakeholders that we must do more to protect the health and safety of the skilled health care workers that all British Columbians depend on. So, to further explain this issue that workers currently face and just what the role of this independent agency will be, I will be speaking with the coordinator of policy and planning with the Hospital Employees Union after this. So stick around. 
Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Tuesday, December the 10th. Uh, as mentioned before the break, the province is looking to spend around $8.5 million over the next three years to create a new independent agency that will tackle workplace safety for health care workers. Here now to talk about this move is the coordinator of policy and planning with the Hospital Employees Union, Mike Old. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for the invite, Jeff. Happy to talk with you about this. Yeah, so so before we get into, uh, you know, this agency itself and, and sort of the work it's going to do, can you maybe just kind of give uh, the audience here a, a brief explanation of how serious an issue uh, safety for healthcare workers actually is? I mean, you know, people, you know, realize that situations can happen when you're caring for another person and, you know, especially a stranger when you don't know how they'll react to, uh, you know, the attention that they're getting. But just how common are incidents that, uh, you know, make healthcare workers feel uneasy or, or in extreme cases, you know, cause injury? How, how common are these uh, situations? happening. Sure. Well, you know, it's a real irony that, uh, you know, those who are charged with providing safe, quality health care to British Columbians are themselves are at high risk of injury. So to give you an idea of how uh, prevalent the problem is, uh, you know, the rates of injury in in healthcare are, you know, they're about one and a half times the provincial average in all sectors of the economy. In hospitals, it's about twice as much as the rest of the economy. In places like long-term care, where we're looking after seniors, it's almost four times the rate. So healthcare workers work in some of BC's most dangerous workplaces. So, you know, the there is a cost to these injuries. Uh, you know, there's a cost for the people who are injured in terms of their, you know, their physical and mental health and their loss of income, but there's also a cost to the healthcare system. So in 2018, injury claim costs were more than $100 million, and uh, that had increased by about $11 million from the previous year. So it's a big problem, and it's a problem that we have to fix. Yeah, definitely uh, concerning, and, and like you had mentioned, somewhat ironic that those who are you know trying to to help people feel better are the ones that are at most risk of of injury or or, or you know some sort of a workplace uh, situation. So from that perspective, and, and moving forward, just sort of what is the role, I guess, of this agency? What what do you think it can do to really help um, reduce the the rates of incidents that are occurring for healthcare workers and and hospital workers and those who are working in this field? Sure. So just a little bit about the uh, organization itself. So it's the result of uh, uh, collective bargaining that took place in the public sector last year. There are several bargaining associations that represent, uh, you know, uh, our members, HEU members, but also nurses, health science professionals, uh, doctors, resident doctors, ambulance paramedics. And they all agreed that uh, doing some work with employers in, in a joint organization focused on uh, improving health and safety practices in healthcare was really important. That we were really missing some kind of provincial-wide coordination of uh, best practices, of sharing information, and we think that uh, doing some concentrated work on that will help us sort of identify what's going to work and then scale it up across the province, and that's what's going to bring the injury rates down across the sector. Uh, what, what kind of conversations have been had to this point? I mean, when we're talking about improving 
improving the, the health of, or sorry, the, the safety of healthcare workers? I mean, what, what kind of steps uh, could potentially be taken? Because when I'm thinking, you know, that there's concern about patients, maybe the only way to, to really reduce the potential risk would be to have like more security if you're in a hospital situation or something along those lines. But I don't know how realistic it would be to have a, a security guard or somebody, uh, you know, with uh, each healthcare worker when they're dealing with, with uh, potential uh, patients that might cause issues. So I'm just curious, sort of, what, what are the, the steps that could potentially be taken? What are some of the conversations that have been had to this point? Well, I mean, in terms of the organization, the conversation, the conversations have mostly been about how to set up the organization and how to operate it. But in terms of what we can do, I mean, we can look at all sorts of aspects of healthcare delivery, whether it's uh, workload, whether it's the use of technology, whether it's the way we organize the work in healthcare. There are best practices around that can make work safer, and this organization will be in a position to kind of share that information and to figure out ways to scale it up across the across the system and this uh, kind of coordination has proven to work we actually had a occupational health and safety organization that operated from about 1999 to 2010 it was wound down by the BC Liberals but it had a big impact on driving down injury rates and driving down uh, costs for employers of uh, you know paying for these injury rates so uh, this is a this is a proven way of moving forward so we're quite excited that the government has agreed to to fund it to the tune of eight and a half million dollars and to get on with the work of uh, making workplaces safer for healthcare workers. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this, Mike. So I'm just curious, sort of, what your your thought is uh, when we're talking about someone who who needs care. Like, say, I got hurt and I had to go to the hospital for something. How important is it for myself that you know the the healthcare worker that I'm dealing with is feeling safe and and uh, you know isn't concerned about their well-being? I mean, how much impact does that have on the available or the ability to deliver care? Well, let, let me give you a very concrete example. So if you look at the long-term care system, the the most injured workers are care aides, and care aides are interacting with residents all the time. Uh, residents uh, in long-term care, uh, you know, these are our elderly parents and, and aunts and uncles, um, you know, they're becoming, uh, they're their healthcare needs are more complex. Often there's dementia involved. And it really, really uh, helps us if we can have uh, health and safety practices in place that keep the work safer for the workers. But that also means that uh, the seniors that they're looking after will have more consistent and safer care themselves. So we all benefit if we have good health and safety practices throughout the healthcare system. Right on, Mike. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I, I really appreciate it. And like you said, I think it is an important issue and uh, something that we should be paying attention to and making sure those that are taking care of us are, are being taken care of as well. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the time, Jeff. Thank you. Right on. That was Mike Old, Coordinator of Policy and Planning with the Hospital Employees Union. Yeah, like uh, like I said, eight and a half million dollars over three years has been announced by the province to create this agency to try and tackle that issue of of workplace safety for our healthcare workers. Something that uh, needs to be paid attention to for sure. Coming up, I'll be continuing my chat about the Fraser River and the concerns that are taking place as a result of the Big Bar landslide and the blockage on the river that's causing concerns for the salmon population. Uh, yeah, so I'll be continuing that conversation after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. 
Hello and welcome back to the show here on Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. The First Nation Leadership Council is calling on the federal and provincial governments to immediately declare a state of emergency and urgently prioritize resources for the removal of the physical obstruction at the Big Bar landslide on the Fraser River within the next 60 days. The Big Bar landslide has made it impossible for migrating salmon to push through to their natal streams. I'm joined now on the phone with the Secretary-Treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, Executive uh, Judy Wilson. Chief Wilson, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So, can you tell me, just sort of from your perspective, just how severe this issue has become? I mean, calling a state of emergency to remove this blockage in the next 60 days, it sounds like an extreme step to take. So, so just what what is the situation like right now? Well, it's a real dire situation for our salmon that return to the world-renowned uh, Adams Lake uh, uh, fishery, the world uh, world's largest fish run in uh, can- in uh, Canada and internationally. So, uh, very little returned uh, this year. So, as you know, in a four-year cycle, that means that uh, is a real impact and a disaster, really. So, and also uh, in the numbers that were supposed to be originally returning, only a fraction returned. Then you add the big bar uh, rock slide on top of that. Uh, you, you know, you have a dire straits for our salmon fishery, which we all depend on in our area. A lot of our uh, indigenous peoples, we rely on it for as our main food source. And so that really impacts our way of life and also our food security. And so removing the rock is critical. Uh, you know, the water goes down, you know, lower in the uh, so, you know, over the, the winter and fall season. It would be an ideal time to, to get at the rock to remove it. Um, we felt uh, when this slide initially happened, the government should have took immediate actions uh, and removed it before the salmon run uh, occurred, but unfortunately it wasn't done. And uh, I also understand there's a lot of other expertise that could have been brought in internationally from the United States, and that wasn't done either. I think they might have came in and, and looked at the situation, but uh, I don't know. I, I understand why Canada wouldn't be looking looking at all possible resources to uh, remove that rock. And unfortunately, it's like, uh, you know, climate change, there may be more rock slides. We get droughts, we get flooding, we get wildfires, and now you might as well add rock slides to that growing list of climate change that we need to be able to be dealing with. So if that doesn't paint a, a picture of uh, disaster and immediate uh, uh, remedies to it, uh, I don't know what does. So clearly not happy with uh, with some of the work that's been done to this point and um, you know you're, you're calling this state of emergency to be declared in order to I guess uh, see some more resources added to this issue and and see this blockage removed um, I guess what what happens here if uh, something isn't fixed here in the next two months what are the potential consequences that we're looking at well, uh, first of all, there's a lot of people that worked on this. A lot of our Indigenous people that comes to mind is could be Fred Robbins and could be uh, Patrick Harry uh, from uh, Escat and uh, from Canoe Creek. Uh, they, you know, for our Sequatchie people, they've been leading a lot of the work and a lot of volunteers on the ground and technical. We're honoring them on December 14th and Lilith. But the the real 
part is the you know the action of the, the government to make these real needed decisions uh, like the rock removal to actually address the, the key issue. If it, the rock isn't removed, uh, you know it's going to continue to obstruct our fishery. It's going to continue to impact the you know habitat and the uh, the passage of the the fish, not just the salmon, but you know a lot of the fishery. There's only so many that could make it over, and a lot unfortunately didn't, and so it. it potentially uh, impacted all of the fishery along the uh, Fraser River and then the returns back to the ocean. So it is a, a critical state of emergency for all of us and uh, we need to keep the pressure on the federal government. That's who I understand makes these decisions, uh, DFO, and we need to be able to address that. So, yeah, just given all that, I mean, if, if like I said, if something isn't happening within these next 60 days, you mentioned a number of, of things that will occur, uh, you know, if it doesn't happen. But just in terms of what happens to the people or, or even the wildlife that rely on this fish run, I mean, uh, how, how soon do you think you could potentially see some of these spinoffs begin to occur if, if something isn't taken, if, if action isn't taken immediately? I mean, are, do you think that uh, it'll be a pretty rapid um, a shift in, in the way I guess people are going to have to live? I mean, because some people do, like you said, rely on this salmon run and rely on these fish species being able to migrate. And if that doesn't happen, I guess, uh, you know, that could have a pretty significant impact on the way people live. Yeah, I already see it. Like, it's really sad when you drive along the Trans-Canada Highway and uh, you see the um, eagles all along the river in the, in the trees, you know, they're uh, watching for the salmon to return. And you see the bears, you know, that were waiting uh, to return. And then, uh, you know, it, it's really uh, sad to see all the animals suffering that way, uh, you know, because they depend on that uh, fishery as well. And, um, you know, they have to resort to other things. There's been a lot of, you know, the animals coming into the urban areas because they have nowhere else to look for food. And then our people, uh, you know, they're very uh, low income at the best of times and they supplement their food, if not rely on the, the uh, you know, the food, the salmon and, and for their you know, to help feed uh, their families. So that, that's going to have a dire, you know, the really bad economic uh, impacts and also, you know, on, on, on our health and our well-being. So there's a, a whole slew of impacts that's going to happen and we're probably just seeing part of it now, but there will be more in the future. And so a lot of our communities, we've been trying to plan on how we would provide uh, food alternatively uh, to our members. Uh, some of the nations uh, did uh, get uh, pink salmon, pink sockeye, but very few received that. And they're not like uh, the salmon, they're quite bony, uh, you know, different kind of food source, but there, there, I think there was only like a fraction of that as well. So a lot of our nations are really hurting uh, in regard to this fishery and we're looking uh, forward to, you know, discussing and pressing the federal government into action. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this one here, Judy, but just uh, out of curiosity, I don't want to obviously belittle anything that you have just said because um, the work needs to be done. You can't uh, continue to do some of the steps that have been taken to try to move some of the fish that we've seen so far. Um, you know, the, the need to remove this block is is pretty significant because, uh, you know, we have seen some work done where, you know, fish are being helicoptered from one side of the blockade to another. And uh, although that might be, uh, it's not even really working very well now, but it's better than nothing, I suppose. Uh, but that's not something that
that you could do on an annual basis. So this blockade clearly has to be removed. But can you speak to some of that work that has been done and if it has, uh, you know, at least made any sort of impact in being able to, um, you know, help whether it be the people or the fish species itself? I mean, um, you know, if that work wasn't done, could things potentially be even worse than, than what you're talking about right now? Uh, certainly, if our our volunteers and our technicians and the fishery, our Aboriginal fisheries, and you know the uh, the FO, some of the ones that you know are on the ground, if they didn't get out there and, and do the work, and if Cookby Fred Robbins and uh, Cookby Patrick Harry didn't uh, you know get out there and and, and help, uh, you know I think we would have been in real dire straits. But I, unfortunately, I think the big work is uh, getting that rock out of the, the Fraser River, and uh, you know we. Technicians can, you know, do all the work that great work they've done to date, but they, you know they need our help by removing that obstacle. And uh, it's going to be, you know, if we can, uh, you know, do all this what marvelous technology and engineering. Uh, certainly, you know, we need to reach out and figure out how we can remove that rock in a safe way so it doesn't damage the environment or cause further slides and or uh, obstructions for the fishery or the habitat of the fishery. So it's, it's a real uh, uh, challenge and we have to figure it out. And I just want to say all the work that's been done to date regarding our Indigenous uh, and First Nations fisheries uh, people have been tremendous, uh, but they need our help. Well, Judy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. Uh, like you had said, it's uh, definitely something that's uh, been going on probably longer than uh, anyone really hoped. Uh, you know, Brock Slide has, has uh, you know, caused salmon to not be able to move and other fish species not to be able to migrate, and it's impacting uh, the way that people live and the way people eat, and, and not only people, but wildlife as well, and uh, clearly having some significant issues, and you guys are now calling for the state of emergency here to uh, get some more uh, effort from the, both the provincial and federal government. So we'll see if that uh, takes place. Do you have any, uh, any idea when you might hear a response at this time? Well, we're, we're trying to get meetings with DFO and uh, before the close of the holidays on the 20th, that we're still waiting to hear. Uh, and we'll keep pressing on that work in the new year, in 2020. Uh, we need to do that for our salmon. We need to do that for our fishery and the well-being of our people. And uh, we'll just keep working at it. Right on. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll be continuing to follow this story. And yeah, 60 days, the clock is ticking. So we'll see what work is done between now and then. Thank you so much for your time, Judy. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Okay, thank you. Right on. That was Judy Wilson, Secretary Treasurer for the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Yeah, definitely a, a difficult situation here that they're dealing with, uh, calling for the state of emergency. And we'll see if uh, any work is uh, or any response is uh, given here by the, the provincial and federal governments. I assume that uh, they would be quick to at least uh, uh, you know, respond either way, yay or nay, but we'll see if that happens. I understand there's a press conference coming up later today on this subject as well. So uh, some more information will potentially be coming as a result of this uh, situation as it unfolds. Uh, yeah, 60 days is not a lot of time considering how long it has been that uh, they've been waiting to see this, um, these rocks removed from the, the, from the Fraser River, and uh, we'll see if something happens. I don't know. I mean, I, I talked earlier with uh, our, our morning show host here, Howie Reimer, uh, earlier talking about the potential use of explosives or dynamite or something to try to remove that, as uh, Judy had said there. I uh, don't know if that would necessarily be something that would be considered, given that it might have more damaging effects to the environment and to the, the species of, of animals that are living in the area uh, could have uh, even more potential consequences if they were to go that route. I'm sure it's something that would have been thought of by now. You would hope it wouldn't take uh, this much time to think of the, the 
possible solutions and using some dynamite or something along those lines as a solution. If that were uh, something that could be done, you would think uh, by this point in time uh, they would have thought of that and, and would have done that action. So uh, I'm guessing that's not a possibility, and we'll see what else they can come up with here in the next couple of months uh, and see if there is any action taken and, and able to uh, fix the situation as it stands. I don't know. It seems like it might be a difficult one, given that it's taken this long to get to this point, and now this state of emergency has been uh, called for, and we'll see if it is, in fact, declared. Uh, yeah, also just to note, I had the chance to speak with Regional Chief Terry TG on this subject to kick off today's show. So if you missed that chat, you can log into uh, RadioNL.com slash podcast to hear that conversation. Or you can hear the full show later today when it's posted to, uh, you know, wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever you might get that information. It will be up there. Uh, just look for the Jeff Andrea Show. And there's going to be more of the Jeff Andrea Show coming up after the break. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Vancouver Canucks. They're all set to host the Toronto Maple Leafs tonight. One team is out of the playoff picture heading into tonight's game, and the other is clinging on to that final wild card position. And spoiler alert, it's not the team that I expected that's currently on the outside looking in, but I know there's a lot of Vancouver Canucks fans who uh, maybe don't feel the same way that I do. So I'll be discussing tonight's matchup and what the future looks like for the two Canadian clubs after the break. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Tuesday, December the 10th. And thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, yesterday I had a nice long chat with uh, the Blazers play-by-play -play announcer John Keane talking about some uh, Eastern road trip that the Blazers are currently on. And uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit more about hockey. But this time, uh, at least for the uh, initial part of this chat, we're going to be going to the big clubs here and talking about the Vancouver Canucks. They are hosting the Toronto Maple Leafs, my Toronto Maple Leafs here tonight, with the game starting at... 7 o'clock. Kurt, how do you feel about that? Hold on. I guess I should tell you who's in here. I got Kurt <laughs> Appleby and uh, Colton Davies in here right now because they're both Canucks fans, so they're going give to give me the opposite take of what I, I feel probably about tonight's game. So, uh, uh, Kurt, I'll start with you. The game actually starts at 7 o'clock. That must make you feel pretty happy. Yeah, Jeff. It's uh, Honestly, it's about damn time, too, because it's uh, it's been a major point of contention in Vancouver that uh, the league and the Canucks would bend over to the, uh, the will of the Toronto Maple in the, the mighty Toronto market, so nobody has to uh, stay up a little bit later. But uh, in, all, in all honesty, it is ridiculous, and we can sit here on riff, uh, riff on it as much as we want because we're so... Uh, it's the inferiority complex, I think, that Vancouver has uh, compared to Toronto. Um, I just have never been a fan of this. Well, I totally get it. I mean, I'm from uh, out east and from Ontario in the Toronto area, and you know, when when games out here did start at five o'clock here, so that'd be eight o'clock there. I mean, it was great for me. I was never opposed to it because I didn't want to stay up till midnight to have to watch a hockey game. But now that I'm out here, I don't I don't care so much. So yeah. uh, seven o'clock is totally fine by me. But I guess uh, Kurt has that been, or sorry, Colton has that been an issue for you too? I mean, have you ever watched the Leafs and just been so outraged by the fact that the I've Leafs never seems watched to? on them. purpose, uh, you know, for good reason. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, they've had a lot of bad years in, in my time uh, of being, uh, you know, based on my age. I'm in my mid-20s. So a uh, lot of bad years, a lot of bad years. Since, and yet uh, they still but, cater uh, to that market, right? I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, what's for me, it's like, you know, I'll watch the Canucks are on at four on a Saturday instead of seven. Personally, I don't really care that much. 
uh, to be honest. That's just that's just my opinion. Um, I think it would be a little ridiculous if we had a Tuesday game in Vancouver, though, that was more of a uh, uh, market time. You know, it's a work day. Mm -hmm. We almost had no sky train today in the lower mainland. Uh, <laughs> by the last minute, they avoided that, right? Imagine the chaos if you had a 4 p.m. start time or a 5 p.m. start time. Yeah. I think on a Saturday, it makes a little more sense when, you know, it's, it's more often uh, the case. Uh, you know, if it's 4 p.m. on a Saturday... You're just uh, planning your day a little different, and ideally you have the day off anyways if you're in Metro Vancouver and go into a game. And, and if you're watching from up here, you just do things a little differently. Not the end of the world for me. Uh, so what are you guys expecting out of tonight's game? I mean, there's two teams here in basically the exact same situation. Vancouver's sitting just outside the wildcard spot. I uh, thought they were in the wildcard spot. I clearly should have looked at the standings before I came on air here this morning. Calgary jumped them as a result of that win last night. So Vancouver's now sitting in ninth in the West. And uh, the Maple Leafs are currently sitting even further out of the playoffs than they are. They're currently sitting um, in, uh, quick math here, 11th, 9-10, 11th here Eesh. in the East. But they are only uh, two points back of third in their division. That's just a, a showing of how terrible the Atlantic is right now. I thought it was <laughs> one of the strongest divisions in the league, but it's proving to be the exact opposite of that right now. Um, I guess just what are your thoughts on Vancouver? I mean, they've had sort of a surprise season to this point. JT Miller having a career year. Uh, at first, I thought a first-round pick might be too much, but it's looking to pay off at this point in time. Uh, I mean, just do you, do you feel this team really has a good shot at the playoffs right now? I mean, they, I didn't think they would. I thought they'd be like kind of on the bubble, but it looks like they really might push for that that last spot. Yeah, and still when there's uh, games in hand, uh, I know, Jeff, you, you mentioned that uh, they're sitting right outside the wild card spot. They're 30 games played. Golden Knights, who have 32 games played, sit uh, with 35 for that last wild card spot. And then easily, could the Canucks pick up uh, three points in the next two games? Well, it's, it's possible, and that would put them right back over the, the Calgary Flames. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, I do like their chances to make the playoffs now. We've uh, got a bit uh, a bit more intel on the team that uh, had such a flying start off in October. Um, couldn't do the damage in uh, in November, but uh, as the schedule has changed over to uh, December, they've had uh, what, what are we out here three games and and uh, picked up four out of a possible six points. We so. We won't talk about that uh, November 30th uh, stinger against uh, the uh, Penguins, 8-6 loss. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I said... I said <laughs> 27th there, buddy. Sorry. 27th. Same difference, November. But, uh, you know, I said early in the year, Keener asked me just in passing on the Blazers broadcast, are they a playoff team? And I said, eh, if Besser and Pedersen are healthy, yes. And I still believe that. Uh, Petter, uh, Miller, what a great addition, too. What a good compliment. He's mm -hmm. been uh, overachieving, for sure. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that was maybe a good move, you know, if this is a playoff connection team. Uh, he's a guy you can really rely on, but still overpaid for him. To the Absolutely still overpaid for him. To the tune of a first-round draft pick that is uh, lottery-protected, um, so it looks like if the, the Canucks can continue on the way that they're going, they're, they're going to give up their first-round pick next year, as, as I believe it. There's my out right there, if I'm not 100% sure uh, on how it all works. Uh, I don't know, guys. I, I think that we, we've seen uh, some streaky players here. We've got guys like uh, Besser, Patterson, Miller, who have all been picking up points in every game. And, and of course, Quinn Hughes, the, the, the every game. Yeah, that, what a catalyst. That, yeah, well, he is, and he's been at that absolute power play quarterback. And uh, we were kind of laughing about it earlier, Jeff. That is, is he a Norris candidate? If not this year, next year, he is putting himself yeah. into the conversation to be a Calder Cup finalist and a Norris finalist here. Yeah, I don't think he's got the Norris uh, Ooh, under 
or that steep because yeah, just because he is a rookie. You first from Kurt if it happens. I guess. But I will say this: I mean, he's got a real good chance to make up some ground here in this uh, Calder race. Now that Kale McCarr's out for a little bit, I don't know how long his injury is going to be out for. But uh, Quinn Hughes has a chance to really put up some points here. So. I, I, just a funny I, side thought too is uh, we were all expecting to talk about Jack Hughes so much this year, a rookie, with, and you look at how abysmal the Devils have been. And Quinn mm-hmm. Hughes, he's been the star. He's been the star. Hughes uh, this year. Of course, he's got a couple years on Jack, so that conversation's bound to change or come closer. But, uh, but still, was, who would have picked I'm the defenseman surprised. to have more points? Yeah, right? exactly. And you, you mentioned uh, what Kale McCarr's done in, in Colorado, and that's the surging team as well. They're they're fantastic to watch. Uh, takes me back to the late '90s, Colton, before you were born. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, I, I hope uh, Kale McCarr recovers very uh, nicely in six to eight weeks and really puts himself out of that Calder conversation. Well, yeah. there you go. Uh, Leafs versus Vancouver tonight at seven o'clock in Vancouver should be a good one. Uh, we'll see what happens. And uh, New Jersey, like you had mentioned, uh, looking to give up Taylor Hall and Colorado, Oof. like you had mentioned, also um, is looking to uh, maybe acquire him. So we'll see if that happens. All right, don't forget also that uh, your Kamloops Blazers are in action tonight. They're a moose jaw to take on the Warriors, and the Blazers currently sit atop the WHL's BC Division, but the Kelowna Rockets are right on their heels, sitting just three points back with two games in hand. So uh, the Warriors, though, are at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. They're having just one win in their last 10 games, so the Blazers should be able to get a W tonight, and you can hear that action starting at 4.30 with the puck drop set for 5 o'clock. Uh, John Keane will have all that action for you. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me, and a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.